listen properly. All right, so I think like many people, I think many people in the radio sphere, we obviously know you. And when I spoke to you on, was it Tuesday? And I told you I would do some thorough research on you. I had no idea how much you've done, you know, within the radio sphere. And um, the reason why I'm saying this, because I, I knew about, you know, your 5FM when you're in 5FM. And I also knew about Radio 2000. But I had no idea about um, Tux FM. So I think you've got, you really have an incredible story to tell. And I think there's a reason why I did select you. And I, I, I you know, I, I reached out for you. Let's talk about your journey. How do you get into the radio space and why? I think the first thing to say is in terms of people who've managed to make radio a career, I think I've been really lucky to be able to have the journey that I've had. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it's because um, I'm lucky enough to come from a family that were able to support me or create an environment of support while I was uh, young uh, and crafting myself in campus radio. Okay. Um, and, it, and it was financial support. It wasn't always necessarily uh, moral support, uh, but it was financial support. And I mean, my, my journey into the radio business kind of happened by accident. Um, when I was in matric, it was in 1995, and community radio had basically just been born out of the onset of democracy. Okay. So in 94, the independent broadcasting Authority Act was launched and community radio kind of started popping up all over the show. And many universities who had been hubs of basically enlightened thinkers um, and people who had obviously who were young and were keen to basically challenge the system uh, and who basically seen the end of apartheid and the dawn of a democracy, they were kind of behind these campus radio stations. Then, I mean, I started listening to my local campus radio station in Pretoria which was linked to the University of Pretoria and it was called Radio Tux at that time. And it was cool because what they were doing is they were playing the kind of music that my generation in Pretoria were listening to. They were speaking the kind of language that we were speaking, you know, so colloquial uh, slang. And they were talking about places and nightclubs and events that we were going to. So I kind of got into it um, by, by being a listener. And in my first year, I thought, well, that could be kind of cool to do because I knew I was never going to make the basketball team uh, or play rugby the way that I did, you know, at high school. Because, yeah. I mean, the, the, the metric substantially changes um, in an environment like that. So I kind of I kind of applied. I thought, well, let me become a DJ. Everyone thinks I must become a DJ. And they hired me, but they didn't hire me as a DJ. They hired me to work in what they called the outside broadcasting team, which was basically the disco team. It was the team that would get booked to take music to events and socials and school halls and, and play discos. And that's kind of where I started. And then through that process, I got myself on air six months later doing two shows a week, like between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. And, you know, it kind of it all, it all spiraled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind, of, it kind of grew and it progressed that way. Um, in the interim, I was obviously uh, studying a mixture of law and politics. Um, and that's where... Uh, Gareth Cliff and I basically started in the same year at the same time in the same place. Okay. Um, and we were studying the same thing. Um, and, and I mean, so law was always in the background. So there was this interesting mix of, of discovering media. And at the same time as, as we were discovering media, the radio station was basically discovering broadcasting because by the time I got there, the radio station had only been on the air for about a year, although it had a long history of, of being on campus and, 
you know, being a campus radio station in a different form. But this concept of being on FM constantly was relatively new. Um, but there were a lot of young, talented people who were enthusiastic about it. So there was a lot of learning, and the learning curve was quite steep. And very often, the learning curve at the radio station was far steeper than the learning curve in the classroom. And I think that's where my first slip into broadcasting came is that I spent more time at the radio station than I did in class. Um, yeah. And we were young and dedicated, and, and we got on with it. So I spent uh, my first three years on campus um, as a student, um, trying to do law and, and doing this radio thing. Um, I then left, I actually left Tuck um, in 99, uh, basically after my first stint at campus radio. And I actually went to go and start a job at a law firm doing my articles. Um, and that, I mean, that process was about two years. But what would happen is the radio station would always call you back when they had an event on and they needed someone to stand in or over Christmas or the holiday seasons, they were always looking for ad hoc presenters, and they'd very often phone some of the old guys and say, hey, would you come back and do a show? So I always kind of kept my hand in the broadcasting thing. And the other thing that I, that I basically did as, as a constant, and it was basically to keep me financially on the go, was I continued to be a DJ at events and functions, um, and I'd invested in a bunch of equipment. Um, so I was, I was always intrinsically linked to the music thing. And then uh, the guy who initially gave me an opportunity, Rian van Heerden, who now does the Jacaranda FM afternoon drive show, yes. he then approached me while I was still doing my after, uh, articles. And he said to me, look, uh, 5FM is doing this thing with Barney Simon where they're playing like really hard rock at night. Um, and they, 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 they've gone the really hard rock route. Would you be prepared to come and do some stuff with us where you kind of play the music that the radio station is associated with but maybe tone it down a little bit and be a bit more conversational and do some magazine stuff. Basically, just come and be you and see if we can't be a, an alternative, if you'd excuse the pun, to Barney Simon, which I did. So I was doing my articles during the day, and at night I was at the radio station doing cool stuff, and that kind of led to my second foray into campus radio because at a point I kind of decided, well, that's it for the law. I'm going to give this campus radio thing or this radio thing um, a bash again, and I got a job being a full-time presenter, earning 50 rand a show. Um, and that was probably in about 2003, 2004. And then from there, uh, you know, I, I started moving and shaking and doing a bunch of things. But that, I mean, in a nutshell, that was my introduction into radio, was through yeah. campus radio. Um, I, I was lucky. I think very often these things are about timing. Um, I, my timing was right. I've always been a relatively hard worker. I'm not always the cleverest guy in the room but I'm always prepared to work hard and do, and do elbow grease stuff. Um, and I did a lot of that. Um, and I think it was just a little bit of tenacious spirit, a little bit of really good timing uh, and just grinding at it kind of gave me the background. And I mean, I would always recommend to people community radio is a place to start because the, the reality is the most stuff that I learned was in that environment. Um, yeah, from I technical mean, to I always, people to everything. Yeah. I mean, I always get the I always get the feeling, and I, I had this conversation with somebody that community radio stations, for some reason, still still abide by traditional rules, but also break the monotony in a sense. And um, I always get the feeling that community radio stations tend to evolve more. But I think that's a conversation later on. Um, I think with you know, in regards to campus radio, um, the reason why I'm dwelling on campus radio so much is because I, for one, I was also in campus radio just last year. And I realized how everybody wanted to be behind the mic. 
but then I real I mean, as time progresses, nobody ever thinks of, you know, being a program manager at the time. Do you really think yeah. you had that? Um, okay, because you already spoke about 5FM. But why, why on earth would you want to be a program manager at the time, at such an early stage? So, with my background at, at Tux, so when I was at Tux, um, I, was, I started doing this disco thing. Part of the disco thing is you've got a, quite an early on exposure to a lot of technical things. So cabling and mixes and how all the stuff speaks to each other. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, uh, I started messing around with computers. It was in, in 1996 was the first time I'd ever touched a computer. So now you've seen computers and you've seen the things that got audio on. How does this work? Um, then, you know, I was passionate about music. So I started sitting on, an, on music decisions and, and the music committee. So I kind of got a, a bunch of, background into, into a bunch of things and because I was studying politics I also had a keen interest in in the news environment so I understood how the news channel worked and um, you know I knew how to write the news bulletin if I ever had to and 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 what had happened was after I'd moved from Tux I'd moved to Radio 2000 uh, and I had a, a three or four year journey there ending up on the breakfast show but what I'd realized early on at my time in Radio 2000 was and it, 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 I mean it, it was a very simple calculation the broadcasting business was filled with people like me, i.e. white males in their 30s. They, we were everywhere. We were in commercial radio stations. They were still all over public radio, um, on, on the big commercial at public radio, uh, at places like SAFM and RSG. And I thought, you know, you're not particularly talented on air. You're not bad, but you're not the best. So you um, felt you know, in so some way, you felt in some way it was monotonous. Uh, I didn't think it was monotonous. I just thought to myself, there's, the longevity in this thing isn't really there. And do you really want to be, do you really want to be a DJ in the next five years? And I thought to myself, no, because what I've done is I've gone and built a tapestry of so many other things. And basically, I'd, I'd empowered myself as a program manager. So what I'd also done in Campus Radio, I was a program manager. When I was at Radio 2000, I headed up a training and development um, module or course for them with, with young people. And I was always quite passionate about the training stuff and empowering other people that I work with um, to sound better and be better on the air and think about things differently. And that was kind of a natural move then uh, into becoming a program manager. So at that stage, I then started applying for programming jobs, 5FM, uh, SAFM, uh, 947. Uh, there were a variety of places and I applied for a job um, at the African Media Entertainment Group in Bloemfontein for their radio station, OFM. Okay. And I went to the interview, and when I walked out of the interview, I thought to myself, I've got this job. Um, and that was in the middle of June, and I started on the 1st of July. So I basically left Johannesburg and, and the SABC on a 10-day notice period. Um, I jumped in my car, and I drove to Bloemfontein, and I started my first job as a commercial programmer. Um, in 2008, in July. But surely, surely, surely that might have, there. yeah, but surely that might have, you know, could be a, a cultural change or social cultural change. I mean, you know, the dynamics between Kauteng and Free State, um, you know, one could, yeah, absolutely. one needs to consider these things. Uh, you do, but, you know, the thing that I knew, because I'd been applying for programming jobs and I'd gone for a couple of interviews, is I realized in order to get to where I need to be, I need a job in a market like, like a secondary market like in Bloemfontein and yeah. Central South Africa to prove to people that you can do this thing. Because 
you know, the unfortunate reality is you know that you've got the skills and you've got the background, but people want to know that you've spent some time on the road um, honing those skills. And Bloemfontein was the perfect opportunity for me to do that. And the really cool thing about my move to Bloemfontein was the management team was super supportive of, of a lot of the stuff that we wanted to do. And I mean, we did some really out there in inverted commas kinds of things for a market like Bloemfontein um, or, or Central South Africa. I mean, we, uh, we had the opportunity to hire a lot of traditionally non-white uh, talent um, who didn't come from the free state. Um, I hired Rian van Heerden, who I alluded to earlier, who's a white male, who is not uh, what you would typically expect to find in a town like Bloemfontein, which could be quite conservative, but Rian is everything but conservative. Um, and, you know, th th that support that I got from my boss and from the management team really gave me the opportunity to do something. And, yeah, sure, it was a bit nerve-wracking in the beginning because we didn't know if it was going to work, but it did work. We got, we got some really good numbers. We started getting some really good traction out of that lineup. Yeah. And that kind of gave me the, the opportunity to prove to people that I can do this job. And then, you know, the move to, to 5FM came from there, which was relatively seamless. And then from 5FM heading off and, and becoming an, an independent consultant. So uh, it, it, was, it was almost like some people would say you took a step backwards. I just took a step in a different direction to get to the direction in which I wanted to go. Um, I, think, I think you took a step. You envisioned something before people did the, you know, made the step they did. And, um, you know, before you get us to 5FM, I think big up to you because, um, you know, you've spoke about how conservative may, perhaps the audience could be in, in Bloemfontein or in Free State. And, um, you know, it's just, again, breaking the monotony and bringing Rian in, um, you know, making those, making, those, making those brave moves could be, it's a make or break for any program manager. And uh, maybe perhaps that was a good reason why you got into 5FM because you know those are type of moves that that helped that propelled you to make the decisions you made yeah absolutely you know the thing i'm also going to say is you never as a programmer you're never operating in isolation so yeah. you need to have a plan you need to set it and you need to be able to back it up so i definitely had the right kind of support but i, I definitely think you know the blue sky thinking saying look uh, in order to propel this brand forward and to remain fresh we needed we need to do a bunch of things mm. and very much um, you know, that kind of earned me the reputation as, as being a bit of a change agent. You know, so when I moved to 5FM, the conversation with the then station manager was, you know, for a youth brand, we've really become quite unyouthful. So, you know, that my strategy is going to be to change. We're going to have to get rid of some of the old guard who proved to be hugely popular um, with the audience. But the problem is the audience have all grown older, but we've never managed to find the young people to replace them. So, you know, it was, yeah. it was a bit of a change strategy. Um, I must admit, I think that must have been the hardest job for you because I was at a time, I was still in high school and I, I mean, obviously grew up to listening to 5FM and the guys, you know, I, I mean, the guys you're probably referring to, uh, you know, your Rob Vimbers and your Gareth Cliffs and your Freshers. But again, we grow, people do grow as time progresses and making those changes must have been really extreme, you know, must have been very difficult. Um, because, you know, the people are emotionally attached to a certain presenter and, you know, changing, changing the frame of the radio station could be um, equally hard. So, I, I mean, I can just imagine and I think 
not many people realize because I remember there were so many changes in 5FM and I think a lot of people never realized what was going on. Um, I think people knew what they were trying to do, but it was going to be extremely tough to change the mindsets of a newer generation. Yeah, absolutely. And a couple to change the, the audience's mindset. 5FM is a commercial asset at the SABC, so it's a moneymaker. Yeah. So the other thing that you have to do is you have to go to agencies and you have to tell people that it was changing. And because they had become fans of the Fresh Drive, it was hard for them to know that Fresh was moving and that he wasn't going to do the Fresh Drive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had to sell them that vision. So, you know, for a period of two or three months, we were at agencies in Durban and Cape Town and Johannesburg uh, and in Gauteng, and we were telling these people, this is what we're doing. And everyone said, this is like, it's crazy. It's never going to work. You know, one of the things that, that I said to myself is, you know, traditional drive time radio is between 6 and 9 a.m. I had a look at the 5 FM statistics, and it showed at 20 to 5 in the morning, the audience started spiking. So by the time Gareth came on at 6 o'clock, like, we actually had already built critical mass. So why were we putting our second team DJs on between five and six in the morning because we thought it was too early. I said, we need to put our prime talent earlier. Um, and that's why we landed up having fresh starting at five and five in the morning. Because, yeah. Yeah. What happened is at 20 to eight, a bulk of the audience actually tapered off. So then we had an opportunity to try something else, you know? So your plans also sometimes the best made plans get way laid. So our plan to have fresh followed by Gareth, uh, failed at the last minute because Gareth went off to go and do his bright venture um, and the amazing project, which is now Cliff Central. You know, so we then had to fast track a guy like Nick Hammond. We had to bring him in and say, look, guy, we had a plan for you, but the, f- the plan's been fast tracked. This is what we're going to do. So, you know, moving fresh, fresh onto the breakfast show between five and eight ultimately, ultimately was the knock on that Metro now starts their breakfast show at five o'clock and it's hugely successful for them. So five of them has gone back to six to nine. I don't know if I agree with that, but Metro is stuck with, with the five o'clock start and I think they're, they're reaping the results of that. So, yeah, there is a little bit of out there thinking when it comes to some of the stuff, but again, you, you don't get it right unless someone supports you doing it. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's really, really interesting. All right, so let's talk about the, the advent of social media and I think we've touched on a few things, um, but I think, you know, for me, you know, sometimes management makes changes or sometimes the audience demands changes, naturally. But, you know, the advent of social media has really changed the dynamics for me because um, in, in many ways, um, the social media has obviously amplified the voice of the audience and, you know, instills more pressure onto the management. What do you think, how do you think social media changed the game? And I think probably like 2000, 2000 2009, 2010, there, there were a lot of, you know, you know, social media could make this type of change, you know, demand a certain change for a certain show. Um, do you think that, w- that creates a lot of pressure for you? You know, in the time that I've been active in this business, radio has always been under pressure from something. So when I first started <laughs> in campus radio, we, we, we still had, we still had cassettes and vinyls. You know, before me, guys were using reel-to-reels. Then the CD came along. They said, oh, mm. CDs are going to change people, the way people listen to radio. And then very soon thereafter, you know, WAV files and MP3s. Then yeah. computers were going to change the radio business. And then, you know, there was mini discs. And then, and then, and then, you know, then there came Donald Trump and there came politics and there came fake news. Radio's always been under pressure from something. So in the time that I've worked in the radio business, 
social media has been around for half that time. So yeah. it's not a new thing. Yeah, sure. So social media itself has morphed as a product, but social media and, and radio play nicely together. They're like, they've, they're the perfect kids on the playground. So, you know, if, if, if you're going to listen to every piece of feedback you get via email and tweets and Instagram, and you're going to react to all those people, you're never going to be able to make a decision. So, you know, sometimes I'm of the opinion people don't know what they want until you give it to them. So you can look at trends and you can see what people are saying and the way that they're reacting. But sometimes you actually need to go out there and make a decision. And then you need to, you need to enforce that decision and you need to push through with it. Um, despite what's happening on social media, because not everyone climbs on social media to tweet. Not yeah. everyone is going to post on Facebook and tag you. Perhaps Some just a small just portion gonna, of people. That's it. Some people are just going to get on with it. So, you know, it's important to be aware of what the sentiment is out there. But I think live on social media, you'll die on social media. So be aware of it. Take it into account. But have a plan. And in the plan, you've got research. You've got social media. Um, you've got internal discussion. You've got a bigger strategy at play. And you need to push through on that strategy. You can't react every time someone tweets. I mean, you'll basically need someone to run that for you full time. Mm. What do you think? What do you think program managers today are doing wrong? What, what do you surely do you think? Um, you know the 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 their steps they're making today, and I'm talking about general from the general public. Let's talk about commercial radio stations. Do you think program managers are being innovative in their approach, or do you think you know they're setting the tone right? Or what do you think? What do you think the case is right now? So I think to answer your first question, what are program managers doing wrong? Mm-hmm. I think, um, and I don't necessarily think it's their fault per se, program managers spend too many times in non-programming meetings. So they're sitting with uh, salespeople and, and they're doing a bunch of things because we're obviously trying to sell the radio station. And yes, that's important because it's a revenue generator. I, I was speaking to a colleague today and he was uh, telling me that they had a, uh, a weekly programming meeting scheduled with the program manager and everyone had logged on. It was an online meeting. Everyone was logged on waiting for the program manager. The program manager didn't pitch up and the program manager then messaged to say, sorry, I'm stuck in another meeting. What as a program manager could be more important than your entire on-air team waiting for you to talk to them? Absolutely. Nothing, nothing is more important than your team, but the program manager couldn't come to his own meeting. So I think program managers get themselves stuck in meetings. Is there enough innovation? There is innovation. Sometimes it disguises itself in a variety of things, and it's not necessarily traditional radio because we're no longer the speaker, the box, the thing that you tune. Radio is a way to connect with audiences through audio and a variety of other platforms using sound. Um, So uh, there is innovation. We could use more innovation. But there's some really clever people doing some really cool stuff. And you see it at a, at a place like the Radio Awards when people enter their innovations. You see a station like Tux making radio for deaf people. Yes. That's like really cool things. Um, and it, it's an opportunity for people to play and do stuff. Could we be doing more? We could absolutely be doing more. But we also have a problem in that we haven't necessarily invested into people's uh, creative education. So we want people to be innovative, but have we ever trained them to think in those spaces? Do we expose them enough? You know, uh, training at developers is an expensive thing. Uh, and people are loath to, to invest money there because I go off and I go and I make 
uh, you uh, an amazing person in the programming department. And then what happens is someone with more money comes and takes you. And I've spent all that time and effort developing you. Yes, so very yes. often we kind of keep people mediocre so that they don't leave, but mediocre is enough to make us money. You know, so, but, so it's a bit of a, a yeah. Do, but do you think do you think it's still a numbers game? Um, considering that's twenty twenty going forward, and the reason why I'm saying this because, um, you know, the the idea of sticking to a certain target audience perhaps could be the the you know we should be, you know, like do you think because whether we like it or not, the listenerships are going you know are are decreasing, um, from a general point of view. I'll say perhaps in your English commercial radio stations. And, um, but now it seems that the radio stations that still do particularly well, although they don't have a, such a huge listenership, but, um, because they maintain a certain target audience and organizations know what they're doing. Do you think that's the case now? Because I, I really don't think numbers, I, 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 for one, don't think numbers, um, you know, speak volume as much as it was 10 years ago. So when I was in Bloemfontein, yeah. um, the radio station I worked for OFM was a love brand in that community. Um, it was a trusted source. Uh, it was where people were, um, people had grown up with it. And, and, and that radio station didn't have a million listeners. In fact, the highest we ever got in terms of audience was 589,000. Okay. But let me tell you something. They had the opportunity to make money and they made more money than a station than like 5FM. We had a much bigger audience. So in Bloemfontein, I, I learned the lesson of, uh, live by the numbers, die by the numbers. So, yeah, numbers play a role sometimes with media planners who don't necessarily understand the fabric of an audience. But let me tell you, if you can sell the reaction of your audience who are reacting to your radio, your radio advertising, your activations, your social media posts, um, and engagements with your radio station, if you can bundle all of that stuff up together and you can say to them, this is what our brand offers you holistically, and this is why you should invest money with us, not spend money. It's an investment because these things become partnerships ah. between the radio station and the client. Once you can convince someone to start investing their time and their effort and their hard-earned money into a marketing plan and a media plan that complements both brands, I think that at that point of engagement, you start seeing some, some really great results. And I think also part of that conversation is in, and, and astute radio brands do this. They're honest. They'll, they'll be honest. They don't spend your money with us now. It's not a good time. Or if you've only got that much money, let's wait for three months. We'll come back to you in three months. Save up a bit more so that we can achieve the following thing, um, which is really going to work for you. By us taking your money for 10 radio adverts, you're not going to see any, any returns, so don't do it. Um, so I definitely think numbers have a role to play, but you, you can't, you can't sell a radio station on numbers. Yeah. If we were selling radio stations on numbers, the community radio industry would be dead because there are numbers. There are no numbers or no real numbers for community radio. Um, and that's, that's the exact argument. Community radio sells the fabric of what that radio station represents to a group of people and their success in that. Interesting. Wow. I, 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 I never saw it that way. And I think you've just painted the clearer picture. Um, community, I mean, community radio stations traditionally have been doing extremely well. And I think, you know, 
maintaining a relationship with whatever brand it is, um, you know, maintains their longevity, um, not just as an organization, but just for the company too that's investing into the radio station. And you're right. I think many radio stations do not, um, many radio stations, even, I mean, even today, many radio stations never consider this. Um, and I think it needs to, it's just something that needs to happen, you know. I, I really think it needs it needs to happen as time progresses, because I think, like many people, commercial radio stations are are doing aren't doing as well as people think they are. I mean, I also think that gatekeepers within these commercial radio stations play a big role. Um, I, I don't want to talk about you know employing presenters, but I think innovation. Um, there's been a lack of, you know, there's been a notable lack, uh, lack of innovation. And it's something that needs to be addressed. Well, I mean, if you look at an organization like the BBC, who are arguably one of the top 10 broadcasters in the world, um, the thing that you would realize in an environment like that is that the BBC have got a research and development department where they spend millions of pounds investing in ideas and products and technology yeah. and all these kinds of things. And that's why they get to do some really cool and clever things. And very often they'll spend millions of pounds on a thing that never sees the light of day, but they've tried something. We're not, as, as an industry in this country, we don't research and invest. Um, but why do you think that's the case? Why do you products? think that's the case? Because it's expensive and we don't have, our, our business is small. The, the margins aren't huge. So, yeah, sure, we've got Prime Media and Kisa Media and, and these big players making millions of rands, but it's an expensive operation to run. So, you know, the yield on, on what these guys are making doesn't allow us to, to take 5 million rand to experiment with a TV channel yes. because there isn't 500 rand. It's interesting. Wow. My gosh. Um, all right. Radio, radio, um, sorry, Radio Africa Days. Is coming up, um, coming yeah. in July, and I'm quite excited. I have, I'll be honest, I've never attended one, maybe because I was so busy with my varsity and, and, and so on. But I have, I am, I, I am attending this year virtually, of course. Let's talk about the dynamics because, I mean, COVID-19 is in the picture. Um, what are the dynamics here, but what are you guys doing differently? What do you think the event is doing differently this year? Well, I mean, I think the big dynamic, and it's a reality for most people yes. uh, in what we call the new normal, is that, we can't have a conference over three days where we give people lunch and people stand around drinking coffee um, and swapping notes and, and phone numbers because we can't put people in, in a single venue. What that has allowed us to do is it's allowed us to go online. Um, it's allowed us to be more agile in, in terms of uh, opening up the venue for people like yourself who previously would have had to pay a registration fee to attend. We now have the opportunity to say, well, look, We've gone and created 20 sessions with 60 speakers from around the world, Senegal, Mali, Denmark, the United Kingdom, the United States, uh, Mauritius. We've got guys from all over the globe coming to speak, but you can attend for free. If you've got access to the internet, you can come to our conference and participate at no charge. So I think that's probably the most positive dynamic for us out of COVID-19 is that we've been able to open the conference to more people and I think what it will probably see in the future is that conferences such as ours will become more of a hybrid. There'll be far more online sessions. But yeah, sure, there's value in, in a conference where you can meet people and, and you can stand around and, and you can talk and network. But there's also huge value in being able to take the learning, the sharing, and the engagement 
that something like Radio Days Africa does and open it up to people in rural communities in Rustenburg who could never have come to an event like Radio Days because, A, there was a barrier to entry in, in travel and accommodation and the fee to come. Now they can continue doing what they're doing and everyone can share the learning um, while it's happening. And after the fact, you can go and re-watch it on YouTube. So, I, you know, I think that would probably be the biggest change for us this year. What do you, how, how, do you, how do you envision the event in the next, um, you know, the next 11 years? Because I'd imagine the next, I mean, the past 11 years have been so progressive. Um, what, do you, what, do you, what do you envision? What do you expect for the next 11 years out of this event? Well, I think if people like myself and Prof. Franz Kruger, who's the head of the Fitzgerald Academy, are still there in 11 years, that would probably be highly <laughs> problematic. What you need is you need some younger people with some fresh ideas and some cool things. But what you'd probably find is a conference like Radio Days Africa would morph what's going on in, in the radio industry. You know? So we've gone, we've gone, yes, we've gone through things like Fees Must Fall. We've done storytelling. Uh, we've seen the advent of the hashtag. So whatever's happening in society where radio operates and, and radio has a voice, kind of filters through to the kinds of content that we do within the conference uh, and those are, are, are the topics. You'll probably find that the radio community across the world will become smaller so you'll have more international participants and you'll start seeing that, that stuff that we're doing in Africa, especially in the on-demand and in the technology space, will start having an impact in the rest of the world because, I mean, this is a continent of storytellers and I think we've mm. got a lot that we can teach people um, across the globe about connecting with each other through the power of a really good story. So I think what you'll find is you'll find Radio Days Globe through events that, that the conference does. And I think, I think, thank you for dwelling on the content because um, apart from storytelling, but there's just, there's so much fertile ground when it comes to African radio. And um, because, I mean, we have so many people that still listen to our radio, particularly in the continent, because um, yes, it's storytelling, but people rely heavily on radio. And I think that's the beauty of it. And I think you guys have hit the, hit the nail there. Well, you know, the thing with radio for me is, uh, the radio that your grandmother had when you were a kid growing up, mm -hmm. that radio still works. You can plug it in and you can still tune into Lesedi or Lekwala Kwala or 5FM or, or whatever you can around there. So that infrastructure exists and it's free. Any other technologies on demand uh, require connectivity to the internet, which you can't really have to pay for, and it requires technology. So you're constantly updating apps and you're constantly updating the device in your pocket. Radio doesn't have that. Um, and Africa is not traditionally a financially rich continent. We're rich in, in many other instances, but our access to a lot of these technologies because of our geography makes it difficult. So radio has established itself over 50 or 60 years with, with infrastructure, and we can basically instantaneously share news from across the globe in a very easy, understandable way. We don't have to try and teach people to listen to the radio. We grew up listening to stories and we grew up listening to people tell us the news. So radio is something which is easily understood and easily consumed and easily made. Um, and, it, it, you know, the, the, the barrier to entry in terms of cost is quite low. Mm. So I, th I think that's why the medium um, remains as important as it does. Um, and relatively cheap. Absolutely. Wow. Um, Tim, 
I have immense respect for you. And I think um, this conversation, we've literally just surfed this, we've just scratched the surface. I don't even think we've, we've dwelled on everything else. But um, from me to you, I've got so much respect for you. And thank you so much for this. I think not, you haven't just educated me, but I think you've just informed everybody that's just about to listen to this. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for the opportunity. It's great to speak to audio ambassadors. Um, I think one of the things that we need to do mm-hmm. as people who have been lucky enough to work in this business is to share what we know. It's to create networks with young people who are the future of, of what it is that, we, that we're currently doing. Um, and we need to have dialogues and we need to have conversations and we need to be available to people to talk. So thanks for reaching out and thanks for the opportunity. Um, people can connect with me um, on my website. It's timzunkel.co.za. Um, and I'm always keen... Uh, to have engagements like this or to lend an ear or a piece of advice. It's free and it's the way that we can connect. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Cool, man. Cheers, bro.